Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this episode, Bishop looks ahead to the readings for this Sunday, especially the first reading from Exodus and the Gospel from Matthew. Both stress the importance of loving our neighbor, and Bishop applies it to the current issue of predatory lending and the sin of usury. Then it's on to listener-submitted questions on religious freedom, why the church doesn't canonize non-Catholics, and scary movies. If you have a question for a future episode, submit it at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. Thank you again for joining us for another exciting episode of Truth and Charity. I hope it's going to be exciting. Thanks, Kyle. I'm, I'm excited to hear your take on some of this Exodus stuff. Oh, okay. I'm anxious to hear what, what's on your mind. <laughs> okay. Uh, do you have a favorite Old Testament, either story or book or... Probably the story of Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers and yeah. how that whole thing developed. Yeah. I love that story. Why? I don't know. <laughs> I just think I love the, the fact that good triumphs in the end, uh-huh. you know? Yeah. This episode is sponsored by our friends... Keith and Cindy Turner, in honor of their mother, Dolores Kais, who listens from Presence Sacred Heart Home in a Villa. So uh, That is great. Thank you to the Turners for sponsoring it, and thank you to their mother, Dolores Kais, for, for listening. Yes, hello, Dolores. Sacred Heart is a, a retirement home? Yes, it is. A retirement home, community, and, and nursing home in uh, a villa. Yep, it's a Catholic home, Sacred great. Heart. All right. Well, we thought we could take a look at Sunday's readings. I think there's a little bit that we could tie into some of our our current climate, uh, some of the things that we've been talking about recently. And also, I'm kind of curious how these the Old Testament reading and the gospel tie together, because a lot of times there's a connection there. Right. And so, maybe right. you could help inspire us a little bit. Yeah. So the the first reading this coming Sunday is from Exodus chapter 22, verses 20 to 26, which actually comes not long after the Ten Commandments are given. Uh So it's that part of the book of Exodus, which is basically the book of the covenant, it's called. So it goes even further into kind of how the people of God should live. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the Ten Commandments are certainly central. But now we get into some, like how social life should be and things like that. Kind of you different to, situations. Like right. if, if this happens, then you should do this. Yes, yes. So why don't you read it, Kyle? Okay. So this is Exodus 22, verses 20 through 26. Thus says the Lord, you shall not molest or oppress an alien, for you were once aliens yourselves in the land of Egypt. You shall not wrong any widow or orphan. If I ever wrong them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. My wrath will flare up, and I will kill you with the sword. Then your own wives will be widows, and your children orphans. If you lend money to one of your poor neighbors among my people, you shall not act like an extortioner toward him by demanding interest from him. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you shall return it to him before sunset. For this cloak of his is the only covering he has for his body. What else has he to sleep in? If he cries out to me, I will hear him, for I am compassionate. Very important reading. It's very dramatic. Yes, yes. 
It seems a little... And, and the, actually, I will kill it, you with the sword. Is, well, you... it's kind of like the prophets. I mean, the prophets speak out really strongly also against various injustices. Mm-hmm. And, you know, hear about not molesting or oppressing an alien. Mm-hmm. I mean, that has significance today. Right. You know? Because you were once aliens. Right. The people of Israel. But you see this in a number of places in the Old Testament about the importance of treating well and welcoming immigrants Mm -hmm. and refugees. Mm -hmm. It's right here in Scripture. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of um, good material here. Maybe you want to go on to the gospel, and then we'll come back to this. Sure. And I can read that. Okay. And this is gospel we're all familiar with, and you'll immediately see the connection with the first reading. It's Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a scholar of the law, tested him by asking, Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. And that's so true because we heard part of the law in the first reading. Well, it it really is about love of God and love of neighbor, Mm -hmm. especially in the reading we heard, the special love and care for aliens, for widows, for Mm -hmm. orphans, and for the poor. You know, you could go on and read more, but basically the message is that we need to be compassionate to all those who are in these kinds of difficult situations. And that's why the church has its teaching of the preferential option for the poor. Mm -hmm. And this is a constant message of Pope Francis when he teaches about our responsibilities, for example, towards migrants or towards the poor, even in our own countries, in our own midst. And why is this so important to Pope Francis? Because it's very prominent in the whole Bible. I think one of the the things, um, you know, definitely the immigration situation, we've talked about that on this program before, the situation of migrants and refugees. I think the issue about lending is also important, don't you? Yeah, I mean, it could be interpreted that a bank, for example, that charges interest for a loan is a violation of this. I don't think that's what is meant here. No, because it's referring to the poor. Mm-hmm. If you lend money to one of your poor neighbors, you know, there's the usury is a serious sin. This is the sin of usury. In other words, when you loan money and then unscrupulously demand excessive interest back, mm-hmm. you know, especially when people are in financial distress, right. you know, vulnerable people, poor people, that they're they're really, really struggling and you give them a loan, but you make their lives miserable. And, and you see this kind of unscrupulous lenders, mm-hmm. even today. Remember right. last year in the Indiana legislature, they were, you know, the payday loan right. issue and our Indiana Catholic Conference and the Indiana bishops, we spoke out pretty strongly against it. And some would argue, oh, these are, you know, short-term loans. They're a way to help someone out of a, of a difficult situation. 
And people who are in this situation, you know, most times it's for basic needs. They need this this kind of payday loan. They don't mm-hmm. have enough money. But then they get in a worse situation. Right. And it causes great financial stress if they're exploited. And one way is exploited is by having these high interest short-term loans. Mm-hmm. And that's what these payday loans basically are. You know, someone has this immediate need for uh, some money before their next paycheck. So they get this short-term loan, but then there's fees and there's interest. And it becomes impossible for some of these people to repay them in the required time frame. So then they end up taking on more debt and they're in a worse situation. So it's really unjust. And um, so I think payday lending, as it's been practiced, is a very recent example of really this this kind of exploitative system that we see that they're even talking about back here in the book of Exodus. Right. Right. I mean, that, that's exactly what we heard, you know, where the Lord says, if you lend money to one of your poor neighbors among my people, you shall not act like an extortioner toward mm-hmm. him by demanding interest from him. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you shall return it to him before sunset. For this cloak of his is the only covering he has for his body. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is pretty strong. You know, Pope Benedict, I remember, spoke out in his encyclical, Caritas in Veritate, Charity in Truth, against usury, about how these more vulnerable parts of the population, they need to be protected Mm -hmm. from the risk of usury and should be helped to defend themselves against usury. When they're in financial difficulties, and then they're used in this way, they're exploited. And we also need strong consumer financial protection to prevent these payday loan abuses and protect vulnerable people and their families. So I think it's really important to restrain this predatory lending. There's an ecumenical effort called Faith for Just Lending, and it's an ecumenical thing, but a lot of Catholics are members, and it tries to raise awareness of, of the harm that's caused by payday lending on families and on communities. And there's some say, well, what other source of help do they get then? Well, there are organizations that have alternative sources of credit for low-income people and families. You know, we, right here in our own diocese, someone who's in this situation can come to Catholic charities for Mm -hmm. help. You know, we have Catholic credit unions that Mm -hmm. are helpful too. Yeah. So is there, I guess, ever a situation where these would be justified like if they reduced the the interest rate or made it more transparent of what the fees would be or gave a longer period of time to repay it or all or, the above i guess what are, what would we be asking yeah all of the do? above okay yeah so it would have to be looked at to see uh, about it um, but i also think yeah i, I think exactly everything that you just said but i also think there's a, a way to help people who are struggling to meet their basic human needs with generosity, help them with a gift. I mean, Mm -hmm. that it's not just a loan, Mm -hmm. especially when they're in a situation, emergency situation, and then help them to get out of that rut that they're in, that this, that they don't, you know, maybe their wages are too low. You know, I mean, there's all kinds of issues involved here. I mean, 
you know, so it's it does get into issues of justice. I mean, why are they in this this predicament? Right. There might be issues of um, the jobs are too low paying, or maybe mm-hmm. they're dealing with childcare issues, or maybe they need help in financial planning. I mean, there's all kinds of things going on. And the nice thing about something like Catholic Charities is they're going to dive into the situation and try to see how can we help you so this doesn't happen again in the future. Whereas a business that makes their profits off of these interest rates, they don't want you to get out of poverty because then you're no longer a customer. Right. And so... Yeah, and that's why we have case managers. Right. Because often there's multiple financial issues going on, multiple challenges that someone might really need some help and some guidance. I mean, in some cases, some people can get into trouble because of an addiction. Mm-hmm. You know, so maybe the root cause of their financial difficulty is they're using money on drugs. Right now, I don't want to. I'm not saying that in a sweeping way because there's obviously a lot of people who are in financial difficulty, and there's nothing like that sure. going on. Sure. But but in some people, that's that's the case. Uh, why are they struggling to make ends meet, mm-hmm. and how we can help them? Maybe helping them get some more job training so they can get a better job. Yeah. Or education that can lead to a better job. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I've noticed recently, things like GoFundMe and these other kind of online fundraising platforms where you can set up an account for somebody that's in a rough situation. So maybe... You know, somebody has these huge medical needs or their house, something happens to it and they aren't able to to pay for whatever needs fixed. And somebody, a friend or somebody that knows them, a neighbor, might see the situation and say, I, I can't afford to fix the problem. I can't afford their medical bills, but can set up this little fundraising platform to raise the funds. And if everybody pitches in 20, 30 bucks, it's amazing to see the generosity and sometimes from complete strangers who, hey, this person needs some help. Would you mind helping out? And all of a sudden, they'll be raising thousands of dollars, you know, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars or even more for the cause. And it's kind of neat to see technology and, and these social media to be used for good in these situations and hope that we can maybe all be more generous when we see situations like that, whether it be an individual and I can help this particular situation. Uh, last week, we were talking about Blessed Carlos, who helping out the poor person to get him a meal, buying a sleeping bag for somebody that was homeless on his way to school. And, you know, maybe we can take care of those individual needs, or maybe, you know, we can participate in something that's raising, or, or even just supporting things like uh, Catholic Relief Services and Catholic Charities that are helping to do that work. Yeah. And, and I think generous. on the parish level, you know, I think every parish should be saying, well, how are we, what are we doing in this area? You know, in my parish where I was a pastor, it was very poor inner city, Harrisburg. We we were involved in Habitat for Humanity. So Mm. our block had all kinds of burned out and broken down houses and around us, our street, the street behind us. There was an alley behind us that had these particularly decrepit houses. Well, we joined up with Habitat for Humanity and did one house at a time. Mm-hmm. Really fixed them up, became nice, very low income, became, and then, you know, in the family that would move in, you know, we got to know and they were part of it. And that was just great. It was a yeah. community working together to fix up these homes. When you think about it, they could never have done that on their own. They right. could never have afforded 
the carpentry and the electrical stuff, but we had all these volunteers mm -hmm. and they were, a lot of them were parishioners who mm -hmm. had these skills and they would take a Saturday morning or a Saturday and they would, the electricians would come in or the carpenters would come in. I mean, I didn't have much talent in that, those areas. <laughs> so I'd be like there, you know, serving them coffee or whatever, but uh -huh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe hammering a few nails. Yeah, yeah. But um, those are kinds of things. I mean, this is what solidarity is all about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when it can begin on this local level with the very local community, whether it's a parish or a neighborhood, it's, it's a great thing to do because people in those situations need a helping hand. And it's not something that's just a handout. It's an actual, you know, cooperative kind of uh, effort. And kind of getting back to the gospel and putting this on that perspective of the two commandments, the greatest being to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And then the second was like it to love your neighbor. Is this an oversimplification of the gospel or, or can you really almost kind of condense the whole Bible, all of scripture to these two commandments? Yeah, I mean, in a sense, they everything flows from love. God is love. Mm -hmm. The Christian life is a life of love, and I think everything flows from it. But, I mean, it, there's just a multiplicity of ways to live out the commandment of love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because it ends with the, the reading from the Sunday said, the whole law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. It's exactly. kind of a cornerstone of, of all of our obligations, I guess, as, yep. as Christians. Exactly, exactly. When we fail in love, or, or we, we drift away, if we drift away from that being the center of our life, center of the Christian life, we can end up like the Pharisees mm. and the scribes, mm -hmm. where, okay, we might have all the right doctrines and everything, but it becomes empty, it becomes hypocrisy if we lose the heart and soul of the gospel. And really, you look at a crucifix, I mean, that's it. Jesus is giving of himself totally in love, love of his Father and love of us. That was the sacrifice of himself. And that's the Eucharist. I mean, that's what becomes present on the altar. We're nourished by his very body, broken for us, his blood poured out for us. And then we need to live that, mm -hmm. that Eucharistic consistency to live what we've just celebrated. All of it's connected. The moral life is not something separate from the liturgical life. It should be all one. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, if you have questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash askbishop or text the Holy Cross College text line 260-436-9598. And we have questions about religious freedom, scary movies, and more coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. When you're worried about your health, you go see a doctor. Worried about finances? Talk to the helpful folks at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You already share our values. Why not share in our savings? Notre Dame FCU. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, and I will ask questions that listeners have submitted, like our first listener who wrote, I think the USCCB's faithful citizenship document doesn't emphasize religious freedom. 
Isn't the freedom to worship and openly express religion just as important as the common good and loving our neighbor? You know, I, I would say in our new introduction to the document, Faithful Citizenship, we have one sentence about religious freedom. But to be honest, we don't. There's so many issues. Mm -hmm. um, religious freedom, I agree with the with the caller, is really important. We say in that religious freedom problems continue to intensify abroad, big problem in international mm -hmm. affairs, but also in the United States, not so much in the last couple of years on the federal level, but definitely on the state and local levels, mm -hmm. we've had some challenges to our religious freedom. So it is mentioned there in the introduction, but then when you look at the document itself, which is several years old now, so it's uh, the introduction was new, the revision of the main document, we didn't revise it this time around, but we have a whole paragraph, it's number 72, which is on religious freedom, and we talk about how we need to vigorously promote religious liberty, that the U.S. policy, both at home and abroad, we speak of it as our first and most cherished freedom. Mm -hmm. It's rooted in the very dignity of the human person, so we see this as part of human dignity. It's a fundamental human right. You know, we quote the Second Vatican Council on this. We shouldn't be coerced to act in a way that's contrary to our beliefs within due limits, of course. Mm -hmm. So really in our in our United States, one of the strong things about our history is that religious freedom has been strongly protected in law and in our culture until lately. Mm -hmm. And that's a worry for us bishops. So we have to be really strong in our defense of religious liberty. It's more than just the freedom to worship but the freedom to live our faith in the public square, to operate our schools according to our own values, to operate our hospitals according to our own teachers, teachings, our Catholic charities agencies according to our principles. And those are the things that have been threatened, as you know. And I could go into a lot of specifics, but we've been very vigorous. I'm on the committee for religious liberty, for the defense of human liberty, uh, religious liberty in the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. Issues come up in the courts. Mm -hmm. Issues come up in legislatures. This is one of our, our main priorities of the USCCB. Now, could it be treated at more length in the faithful citizenship document? Yes. But I do think it, it's definitely there. Yeah. And it's a pretty, you know, number 72 is a pretty full paragraph. But I think if threats to religious liberty grow, then I think you'll see even more in the next revision of mm -hmm. faithful citizenship. And you mentioned religious institutions of hospitals and schools and churches, but also our businesses and business owners a lot of times have been having court cases and things of them trying to practice their faith, whether it be with employees or with customers. And I think there's a lot of ramifications for where that could go in the future as well. Yeah, conscience protection. Mm -hmm. Really important, not just in religious institutions, as you say, but also for individuals in, in their businesses or even in things like public schools. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, a Catholic teacher in the public school right. or, or Catholic students right. in public exactly. school, what they can and can't do or say. Or, yep. Yeah. Yep. And I think you don't have to look very far to see what's happening in Canada of, of restricting religious freedom and liberties 
in these different cases, but like you mentioned, Europe as well. So yep. uh, definitely something for us to be considering as, yes. uh, with elections and such. All right. Someone asked, why doesn't the church canonize non-Catholics? Well, it doesn't, it's not because we don't believe that there are non-Catholics in heaven. It's only Catholics that can go to heaven. No, but the idea is that when we talk about the process of canonization, it has to do with those who live within the church of Christ, where we have the fullness of God's revelation. So, therefore, even though there are good and holy people of other faiths, they wouldn't belong to the, quote, the community of salvation, which has been endowed by the Lord with the gifts of fullness of, of the revelation and also all the means to salvation. They would have elements of truth. There are some people who've lived heroic Christian lives and they're not Catholic and we can admire them, etc. But we don't, it's not for the Catholic Church to, to investigate the holiness of someone who's not in full visible communion mm-hmm. in, with her. So we just don't canonize people outside the communion of the church. Okay. My mom was recently talking and asking about if there's been incorrupt people that were not Catholic. Are you aware of any? I have never heard of any. Incorrupt being somebody who has been dead for a long time, but their body hasn't decayed. Never heard of it. Yeah, I don't know. Is is that purely a sign of their holiness or is there any kind of scientific explanation for incorrupt bodies? You know, I really don't know the answer to that question. My, my sense is that there's usually no natural explanation yeah. because the natural process would be corruption. Now, I, unless they're in a uh, space that's been artificially constructed to preserve their body, uh-huh. but that wouldn't be the case of the Right. The incorruptible saints. I, I don't know why that isn't more broadly known and, and convincing to the science scientific yeah. community. Yeah, that's a good question. All right. Another listener said, many Catholics are involved in helping mothers choose life for their babies. What are some other activities we can participate in to show our respect for the lives of people already born? Yeah, you know, one of the things I... I mean, there's so many ways, activities. I mean, all of the charitable activities, so many of the charitable activities of the church that, uh, especially as we've been talking about already, uh, the charitable organizations. I mean, involved in the same, everything from the St. Vincent de Paul Society to the Christ Child Society, supporting women's care centers, by the way, which also care for women after giving birth, mm-hmm. not just before giving birth. Right. I'm not sure if if the person who asked the question is talking about children and mothers shortly after childbirth, or are they talking just the whole spectrum? Well, I feel like this is something that we get criticized for as Catholics or pro-life people that you only care about the unborn child and aren't doing anything, which I don't know how you could say this with a straight face, but aren't doing anything to help the families after birth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean... That we're the biggest charitable organization in the world, helping people after birth. Mm-hmm. You know, just, I mean, when you look at, I mean, we've talked a number of times on this show, 
Catholic Relief Services. I mean, we're in over, we're in like a hundred countries mm-hmm. serving the poor. Look at our Catholic charities in practically every diocese of the United States, helping those who are poor here in the United States in our own local communities. You can think of our Catholic work in healthcare, mm-hmm. and especially caring for so many people who can't afford, who don't have insurance, caring for the elderly. I mean, there's just so much. So yeah, I mean, we have to care for life at every stage from the moment of conception to natural death. I think where some might say, well, there's, you know, there might be individual Catholics who feel more called to one or the other type of apostolate. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, I did that talk at St. Mary's College a year ago, you know, the pro-life and the pro-social justice. Well, there are some people who in their own talents, et cetera, maybe are more called to do work for the homeless. Mm -hmm. And other people may be more called to help pregnant women. So, I mean, there's all of it. It's not either or. It has to be that we care for life at every stage. I mean, look at Christ Child Society. I mean, they care. They get all these physical things, backpacks and coats and all this stuff and tutoring for children who are from poor families, needy families. So there's just a lot of different niches. Mm-hmm. It, it's almost ironic that a lot of times the people that are criticizing you for not helping out somebody, but you're helping out somebody else, yeah. often aren't doing anything to help out anybody themselves. You know, like, <laughs> I know. Okay, I'm, I'm just trying. You know, I'm trying to help yeah. out these people and somebody else. Can. Are you aware of any gaps in the, the system that, that people are, that aren't being helped or supported? Yeah, I mean, we're always looking at this. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we look at our own community, you know, especially with Catholic charities, I'll always ask that question. Is there anyone we're missing? Yeah. Because there are some other charitable organizations, for example, they have homeless shelters. Mm-hmm. So I remember saying, you know, should we really open our own shelter for the homeless? And we have the Center for the Homeless up in South Bend. A lot of Catholics support that or the rescue mission in Fort Wayne and some other places throughout the diocese. So we kind of collaborate with other faith groups and other community organizations sometimes. But if we really see something that, okay, no one's taking care of this. This is a really a group or, or a problem that maybe we need to step up and be the principal operator. So I noticed that because of the problem of addictions, the opioid crisis and mm-hmm. all that. You know, there's not a lot of in resi- residential treatment programs. I mean, my heart's been broken by some of the stories of our Catholic families that have been affected by this. So we're studying about uh, having a Catholic residential treatment center. We'll probably begin as an outpatient center Hmm. for addiction and be faith-based Catholic. But there's a lot of fundraising involved. It's a lot of work to get licensed for that. But but we're in the early stages of, of planning that. So that's an example where I saw, okay, this is a need in our community, and I don't think there's enough social services in this area right now. So I think we're constantly looking at that. But we can't do it all alone. We work together with other faith groups. We look to see, is there any government funding? Because some of these things are pretty expensive, right. like I'm talking about a tra- treatment center. So it's a lot of, you need smart planning mm-hmm. yeah, to start something like that. Do you think that these, all of these different things, uh, homelessness, uh, counseling, do you think that the government should be more involved and that more taxpayer money should be going to these things or less so and and let these faith-based organizations or just charitable people step up and 
and fill these roles? I, I, I would come back to that both and. Okay. Because, there, you know, there's certain things we just, there's just not enough private money. I mean, when you, or you're not going to be able to raise the money. I mean, I look at the programs that CRS that we have all over the world. We get a lot of private donations from our Catholic people. But there's no way. That would not be sufficient. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like just when, when I went to Ethiopia, you know, we were running 240-some stations of giving out food. I mean, we saved tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people from dying by famine, by starvation. Mm-hmm. Well, we needed a lot of that food came from USAID, from the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. We could not have raised enough money for that food. But we had a grant from the government to do this. We're expert at this work. And we had all these stations. We also use some private, you know, we do get private money as well that we raise. But it was a government church cooperation or government and a nonprofit organization working together. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so I think that those kind of models can work. Now, what you have to be careful is we do not participate in programs that would go against our our moral beliefs. Mm-hmm. So we won't participate in a program that is providing contraception or whatever, or or worse. So sometimes, when you're cooperating with government, you have to still guard your own identity and your own moral convictions. So that's the only risk by being involved with the government. But, you know, thanks be to God, we ha- they haven't had those strings attached mm-hmm. to, the, um, to our work, right. at least up till now. And it just seems like there's kind of the two different extremes, and maybe throughout history we've seen different models of this where the church and the faithful step up and are taking care of the poor, and if somebody can't afford their health needs that are medical needs that the Catholic hospital helps take care of them in all these different situations versus, you know, a government providing, you know, healthcare coverage or uh, different like homeless shelters or, or things like that. Like, would it be better if we were taxed more so that the government can provide these resources or taxed less and expected that people, the, those that choose to support it would be generous enough to, to provide for these Opportunities. Well, you're touching upon something in my speech about economics, right? Remember, yeah. And so this is a huge issue: how much government involvement. Uh-huh. And I can't give you a yes or no answer to your question. I mean, you want fair taxes, just taxes. You want the ability of people to do charitable work, and we are called to do that. So you get to the question: Well, what's the government responsibility? Mm-hmm. Then? That's where you have a lot of political debate, but we know the government is responsible for the common good, and there should be a safety net that the government provides for those who's, who are lacking the necessities. Mm-hmm. Food, water, shelter, health care. Those are basic human rights. And the government has a responsibility to see to it that um, that human dignity is is respected and that people... Uh, those rights are respected and sometimes you know are they living up to that that responsibility or do they even have the means a poor country right may not even have the means to do that Mm -hmm. or they have to charge such high taxes that that's a problem right you know so 
It's a very complex issue. Okay. Or they, they borrow money to do it, and then they have this, these poor countries that have these huge foreign debts. Right. Which is, then that's like predatory lending. Right. You know, on a, on a national level. Yeah. All right. Moving on. Someone asked, what's your favorite scary movie? And then should Catholics watch scary movies? And are there any red flags to watch out for? Wow. I never got asked that question. Horror movies, I guess they're talking about. It's a genre. Mm -hmm. It's a genre of movies that generate fear, Mm -hmm. horror. You know, you can kind of get an adrenaline kind of thing, scared. Right. You know, if they glorify evil, Mm. that would not be good, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, If the level of blood and gore, like some of these slasher kinds of movies... Mm -hmm. There's no real story. There's no real moral right. in some of those. I don't think they're they're good. I would be against gratuitous gratuitous violence. But there are other horror movies that I wouldn't say it's gratuitous violence, where there really is a plot and there is a uh, a moral to the story. Sometimes it shows the triumph of good, but not always. It could show the triumph of evil, but it, but recognizing it as evil, as evil. Right. The ramifications of that. Right. Right. So I think you have to, you know, there is that whole question, for example, and, you know, Pope John Paul wrote that letter to artists back in 1999. And there was one sentence in that letter. It's a great letter. I, I often will look back on it, but when it comes to movies or whatever, um, he's talking about art in general, but I think about movies he talked about how art is seeks the beautiful, mm-hmm. and it's really beautiful. But then he had one sentence. He said, even when they, artists, and this could be any kind of artist, explore the darkest depths of the soul or the most unsettling aspects of evil, artists give voice in a way to the universal desire for redemption. Hmm. That was a very powerful thing. So you have some movies that show the dark side, explore the dark side, aspects of evil, but in a way, therefore, that it wouldn't be morally objectionable because it's looking at evil as evil, as Mm -hmm. a privation. Right. Or, and then some movies the victory of goodness over that evil, of grace over sin. Mm-hmm. So you look at a horror movie, you know, I think there could be some that they have that scary element and all that, but but could have a plot that's morally unproblematic. There could be a good moral in it. There could be, but I don't like all the blood and gore that would be in some of these and there's no point to it, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, if you watch The Passion of the Christ, that's not a, a horror movie, but there's blood and gore. I mean, especially the scourging of Jesus and different things. That's not gratuitous violence. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was the reality. What did you see? You saw the depth of Christ's love, mm-hmm. and they showed that on the screen, this physical torture. It wasn't pleasant to watch, right? you know? So I don't know. What do you think about – how would you answer that? I mean – I, I don't think there's, I guess what I'd say is I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with the genre. 
I, there's a couple of thoughts that I have. One, somebody posted and it really kind of I don't know, made me question things. Somebody at one point had said, fear is not from God. And so if something would be making you fearful, like if watching it makes you scared about things, that that wouldn't be a good thing. Well, I don't agree with that. I mean, okay. fear is part of our psyche. If it wasn't for fear, we would do things that would do us grave harm. Right. I mean, we should be afraid of jumping off a cliff for uh-huh. heaven's sakes. Fear, <laughs> fear is yeah. not necessarily a negative. Okay. Yeah. Anyhow, that's kind no, of the no, presupposition. I, I like there. that. I like yeah. that clarification. Yeah. The other thing is, I get like the um, the supernatural, uh, the whether it be occult kind of things, uh, Ouija boards, and and things that are in a lot of these scary movies. And and that's the hard thing is the genre is such a large, right. uh, such a variety of different types of movies probably but what are your thoughts on on that i I think some of the risk would be it it makes people curious and they want to try these different things whether it be spells or ouija boards or other things of the occult but i suppose the plus side it could be showing the dangers of these things i think a lot of times more it's it's a curiosity kind of they do this thing and then this thing happens and like oh wow that's kind of crazy that That happens. That works. Well, I think that points. I mean, I agree with you on that. That I mean, if it shows the the dangers of using these things, that's that's kind of a a good message. Okay, this is not good for you to practice witchcraft or whatever. But the curiosity thing—that's where you really have to be careful. I think parental guidance is so important Mm -hmm. here, and you have to be really monitor. I mean, I think some of these things are definitely not appropriate for kids who aren't mature, who, where there hasn't been, where all this isn't put into the proper context. Have you seen any of the exorcism movies? Like the, the what was the one, Emily Rose? The exorcism yeah, with Emily Rose, saw, which is based uh, off of a true story? Yes, and The Exorcist I saw back in the 70s. I've seen a few exorcism movies, and... You know, some of them take liberties. Some are pre- the right. I don't know if you've seen yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. R-I-T-E. Uh, I'm interested in those. I mean, the church is, you know, because now obviously they sensationalize certain things. Mm-hmm. It's not always historically accurate, but some of them are pretty historical, some of the parts of them. I mean, I don't have a problem with those. Again, if there's a, if it's presented in a way that has, what would I call it, has merit in mm-hmm. the story. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But I'd be cautious, sure. you know, especially with young people, especially with children. I am not, uh, you know, I don't like watching horror movies just for the sake of, I just, yeah, I, I don't like watching a lot of blood and gore yeah. and, uh, just for the sake of that. No, I don't. That's the gratuitous violence. I see no purpose. And Yeah. Right. All right. Finally, a listener asked, how long does it take Bishop to write his homilies? You know, some t- it really varies. I mean, often it doesn't take me real long. I often will think and pray about it before I sit down and write. I usually get a lot of ideas. I don't really have a problem coming up with a theme <laughs> for a homily. I would say, you know, after praying and thinking, reflecting, maybe doing a little reading, actually sitting down and writing it, Let's say a regular Sunday homily, it might take me an hour, Hmm. hour and a half. 
maybe I've jotted some notes down in the course of the week of ideas that come to my mind. So, so I kind of am thinking about it. Now, every now and then, I haven't got a block, uh-huh. right? And it's not too often, but every few months, I'll struggle with a homily. Uh-huh. Like, I'm just not, or I write something, I'm not satisfied with it. But that's not very often. I would say once every three months, maybe, or four months, where I'm kind of stuck. But I would say on a normal range, I don't have, yeah, it, ideas just come to me. So what do you do when you get stuck? Well, you know what I've learned to do is rather than getting frustrated, sitting there for a couple hours, I just need to put it down and say, mm-hmm. okay, I'm going to get back to this because I'm not getting any good ideas. All right. Well, thank you again for another great episode. If people have questions, they can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop or text the Holy Cross College text line 260-436-9598. And before we go, can we get your Episcopal blessing? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services to save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.